This episode is brought to you in part by Candorel. Coming soon, a luxury master-planned condominium community rising at the corner of Bathurst and St. Clair. Situated directly on the subway and streetcar line, a monument of architecture and interior design, a timeless expression of glamour and grace. Forêt Forest Hill. Register today at liveatforêt.ca. That's live at foret.ca. Hello and welcome to Bonjour Chai, the Sally Presen Semi-Centennial Edition. I'm Ilana Zakon in Toronto, and today I'm here solo to talk to three remarkable Jewish spiritual leaders across the country who all happen to be women. I myself have been dipping my toes into the waters of egalitarian Judaism over the past year. I started going to the Toronto Partnership Minion when I moved to the city, and uh, I grew up uh, modern Orthodox and had never really been to a synagogue where women could have aliyot or... Um, hold the Torah scroll in services. So that's something that I've been learning more about. And I was really excited when I found out that this year marked the 50th anniversary of the first female rabbi in North America. So I thought that would be a great opportunity to dive into these topics and examine what it means to be a quote-unquote female rabbi in 2022. Here with us today to commemorate this special anniversary are Rabbi Elise Goldstein, Rabbi Rachel Cole Feingold and Rabbi Ilana Krieger Lapidas. Since 1983, Rabbi Elise Goldstein has been the longest serving female rabbi in Canada and is the founding rabbi of City Shul in downtown Toronto. Rabbi Rachel Cole Feingold is a member of the clergy at Congregation Shar Shemaim in Montreal and the first Orthodox Jewish woman to serve as synagogue clergy in Canada. Rabbi Ilana Krieger Lapidas is an independent, non denominational rabbi and Jewish community chaplain in Calgary. Welcome to the show, everyone. It is such an honor. To chat with you all. So just a bit about me. I'm an actor, but some people might call me an actress. Um, when I was in theater school, my teacher from day one told us, you are not an actress, you are an actor. An actress is someone who wears feather boas. If you meet a female doctor, you wouldn't call them a doctress. <laughs> so that's a bit of kind of where I'm coming from. And I wanted to start off, um, we'll start with uh, Rabbi Krieger. First of all, when, when and where did you become ordained? And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about titles. Well, I am um, a COVID rabbi, meaning that I started my rabbinic process uh, not that long before COVID started, and I became ordained online through the Jewish Spiritual Leaders Institute um, out of New York. And I was actually ordained online. We were hoping to actually be there in person to be properly ordained, but that didn't happen. We used the technology, and that's how I became a rabbi. So. Being the most recent uh, female rabbi on this panel, how do you feel when people call you a female rabbi? Well, it's actually kind of amusing because I've had, you know, folks who maybe aren't Jewish and even some who are say, you know, double take when I tell them what I do and say, I didn't know women could be rabbis. And... Um, I'm living in a place with a relatively small Jewish community, but it's very active, and all of the other clergy here are male. Um, so I'm a bit of a novelty right now. I'm kind of the it, wow. it girl at the moment, which is both troubling and lovely. <laughs> I was going to say, it's hard to believe. <laughs> right? It is. It is, but that's the way it is. And Rebba Feingold you have a gendered title as a rabbah. How does, how does that sit with you, being the orthodox representative so, of the panel? Uh, first of all, I, I just want to say what – I want to – thank you. I want to say what a, um, 
a privilege and, and honor it is to be here with these wonderful colleagues and also to be here on Bonjour Chai. I'm a, I don't know how I should say, longtime listener and member of the Bonjour Chai family. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, it, uh, what, what I was reacting to in listening to Rabbi Krieger talk about people asking, oh, I didn't, I didn't know women could be rabbis. I mean, it's, it's something that <laughs> I'm shocked that people in the liberal Jewish community are still asking. I mean, maybe we could get into this. Um, because t- to me, to my mind, that, that question has been asked and answered a long time ago in the uh, more liberal streams of Judaism. And yes, I, I get that question all the time as an Orthodox woman. But um, I was you know, in the first class of the first um, institution to ordain Orthodox women in North America. So I kind of expect it that anywhere I go, I, I'm kind of a novelty to people. Uh, but to your question about the titles and being a, a rabbi as opposed to a rabbi, I've sort of been on a, a title journey of my own, um, having used the title Maharat when I was first ordained, but actually having worked in the function of rabbi even before I was ordained. So, so I worked at a congregation in Chicago for six years before I was ordained, and, um, and that was after having completed a different course of study um, at the Drisha Institute in New York, which we might now call the, the proto-ordination or the pre-ordination or, or the not yet smicha smicha. Um, and uh, back then when I was studying at Drisha, we used to call it, I can't believe it's not smicha. Um, like that, I can't great. believe it's not butter. <laughs> <laughs> I think those ads are dated now. I don't know if people remember them. Um, so I've been a rabbi for 15 years, but only an ordained rabbi for nine years. And I don't use the title rabbi, although... Um, some of my Maharat colleagues do, and I guess just to take a moment to explain that to the listeners who may not understand why I use a different title and why, um, in fact, different graduates of the same institution are using different titles. So the school, Maharat, um, gives rabbinic ordination and allows or encourages its graduates to each choose the title that they and the community that they are serving feel most uh, comfortable with. Um, so because the, because ordination of women is, is still brand new, it's, it's, um, you know, Maharat is now about to celebrate its 10th anniversary of ordaining women. Um, there, the jury is still out in terms of what title, uh, these Orthodox women will take as a whole. And, and the answer is that there's no monolithic Orthodox community, even within the modern or liberal minded Orthodox community. And so different people have different comforts with different titles. So some of my colleagues use the word, use the title rabbi. I mean, my Orthodox colleagues right. use the title rabbi. Some use the title rabbah. Some use the title rabbanit. Um, and, um, and that really has to do with the personal preference, the community mm-hmm. that they're serving, or their own comfort. Yeah, their personal preference. So, if I mean, I'm happy to go further into that, but that's sort of in a nutshell. And I think it reflects back. the reality. Yeah. I'll just say one more thing about that. I think it reflects the reality that in an Orthodox setting, there are there are very specific gender distinctions. And for me, mm-hmm. when someone meets me um, and says, "What do you do?" I say, "I'm a rabbi," because that's what mm-hmm. I am. Um, and if you know, and if they ask me, what do you go by or how should I call you? I would say, call me Rabbah or call me Rabbah Rachel or call me Rabbah Feingold, depending on the context. And that's because right. um, it's important signaling for, for me in my community um, 
so that they understand that I'm still within the orthodox halachic context. And people will meet me and say, oh, so are you reform? And I have to explain I'm, I'm not. I mean, I, I love and respect my reform rabbinic colleagues. I just am not that. So um, I'm always trying to clarify what I am and what I'm not. And I'm sure people of uh, another gender in Orthodox clergy wouldn't have to do that in the same way. So Rabbi Goldstein, I'm going to pass it to you now. Um, that was a long answer to your it was question. A, it, was a, it was a great answer. And I, I want to dig in further. That's our life. That's our life. Explain, yeah. Explaining ourselves again and again. I'm sure. And so Rabbi Goldstein, how have things changed since you became a rabbi? So I'm First of all, so glad to be here and so glad to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of Rabbi Sally Prezand's ordination, which changed the world for me. Because when Rabbi Prezand was ordained, I had never seen that possibility for my own life. So I just need to start quickly there when I was 13 at my bat mitzvah. That was 1968. You know, the idea was completely insane. And at my bat mitzvah, I announced that I planned to become a rabbi. The rabbi literally fell off his chair. He fainted, literally. And when he came to, he got up and said, no, 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 no. What she means is that she's going to be the Rebbitzin. And luckily, I was at the Cantor's podium, so I had the Cantor's microphone. (laughs) And I got into the microphone. Imagine this at 13. And I said, no, no, no. Actually, what I mean is I'm going to be the rabbi and my husband can be the Rebbitzin. You know, everybody laughed. I thought it was a joke, too. I thought, yeah. And then people started to steer me towards like being a Hebrew school principal. That was sort of like being a rabbi to them. And I, I, I guess I laughed along with it, too. I was 13, and nobody took me seriously. Then in high school, um, I met Rabbi Laura Geller. She wasn't a rabbi yet. She's the second woman ordained. And I was like, you're in rabbinical school? Like, this is a thing I can actually do? And then, of course, I met Rabbi Prezend. And, and knowing that Rabbi Prezen was ordained changed the, changed the world for me because while I've been a glass ceiling breaker um, in Canada my whole career, um, I, didn't, I wasn't doing this to be the first, you know? I didn't want to be the first. So I'm enjoying this so much being with my colleagues and especially enjoy, uh, as the voice of history, Rabbi Krieger saying, you know, she's, a, she's an exotic specimen in her community because I've been a rabbi for 39 years, 39 years. And I thought it was over. I thought we weren't exotic specimens anymore, but I, we are. And so I just want to say, this is my 39th year of doing these kind of interviews. <laughs> and I, I love it. I'm glad to do it. And I'm doing it in honor of Rabbi Prezen who changed the world. Um, but, but yes, we are still novelties. So for me, the title, Rabbi is extremely precious. I fought hard for it, as did all the other women in my year, in my ordination year. You know, we used to walk into seminary, and my Bible professor of blessed memory would start the class by saying, gentlemen, please turn to Isaiah chapter 1, as if we weren't there, because in his eyes we weren't. So, you know, the day I got that title was the day I clung to that title, and I still cling to it because it's a title we have to constantly explain. And 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 Rabbi Rachel, even people say to me after thirty nine years of my being in this community, people will say, "Oh, I didn't know women could be rabbis." And I want to say, "What cave have you been living in? What cave oh have you been God. living in? I've been in this, working in this community <laughs> can, for thirty nine years." Can I just, 
Can I say something? Um, sure. About, uh, you know, what you mentioned just in passing, like I've been doing these interviews for 39 years and, and I've been doing them for 15 years, but um, there is, I'm not going to speak for you, I'll just speak for myself. Like I'm wondering about the fatigue of, of women who have had to carry this and um, and who got into this work to do the work, to do the work, to serve the Jewish people right, not and to, the world. Not to break glass ceilings not every day. Not to be a novelty. Right, right. So what does it mean to be invited to a women rabbis panel still in 2022? <laughs> and yet we're saying that this is, but this is still, we're exotic specimens, strangely so. So I, I want to I speak to that, but I, I just also want to finish one thing about the title, because I think it's such a good question, Alana, that you asked us all about titles, because um, one of the things I found in the, in, since the beginning is the tripping over that word rabbi that people have when they meet female authority figures, okay? And I, you know, when we were schmoozing before the podcast, I said, I worked, I had the privilege, the honor to work with the great Rabbi Gunther Plout. Never in his life did anyone dare to call him Gunther in public or Rabbi Gunther. You know, these, these male figures that I grew up with and that I worked with were, were great authorities in this country, in this community, and were treated with that kind of respect automatically. Um, and for, for, for female leaders, it's a constant explanation. That is my title. Yes, I go by my title. No, you cannot call me by my first name the first time you meet me because you wouldn't do that to your doctor, right? Or yeah. you wouldn't do that to the prime minister of this country. Like you would never deign, but you deign because we're female to just pick up the phone and say, Hey, Alana. Hey, Elise. Hey, Rachel. You know, wondering if you'll do my wedding, wondering, wondering if I can come talk to you about a bar mitzvah. It's sweet because there's an immediate feeling of comfort because we must be maternal figures in a way to people and, and sister figures. But on the other hand, it's a devaluing of authority that is constant. I just want to say one other thing That's about my really title, good please, because it's, it's so important to me. So when I received an honorary doctorate from Ryerson, for my work here in Canada, which is a great source of pride to me, they told me I'm now allowed to use the title doctor. And I really struggled because that's a supposedly a higher title when you get a doctorate, right? So you're supposed to be doctor rabbi, but I continue to be rabbi. Now I put rabbi doctor, and some people in my congregation call me that, and they have a great time with it. Rabbi Dr. Goldstein, they love that. Right. But the truth of the matter is, the day I got that title rabbi, for me, Jewish history changed in my own life and in Canada and everywhere else in the world. And every time I use that title, every time, for me, Jewish history changes. Because kids are growing up today saying, my rabbi, and then a female name, said, mm -hmm. my rabbi, this, mm -hmm. my rabbi. And, and I, I want that for young girls and boys growing up to look at the bima and see a rabbi who is female. So, R Rabbi Krieger, I'm, I'm going to pass the baton to you, since you've been probably observing um, many rabbis who are women take the podium, and I'm assuming you had some inspiration. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what that journey was for you, and did, did you know of uh, Rabbi Goldstein or Rabbi Feingold before? Were they uh, models that you looked up to at all? 
I didn't know about Rabba Feingold, and I'm so happy to meet you today. You are already an inspiration, and I'm looking forward to getting to know you better. Rabbi Goldstein probably doesn't remember, but she is to me what maybe Rabbi Pressman was to her. Um, probably 22 or 23 years ago, I was um, a Jewish educator at our JCC, and I ran an organization called the Jewish Women's Network, and we invited Rabbi Goldstein to come to Calgary and do a Shabbaton for us. Do you I remember? I totally remember that. Yes. Yes, I do. So precious. And uh, and Rabbi Goldstein came for the weekend, and she was, and we had all these women's day. You know, it was a it was a conference that we did from uh, Friday to Sunday, and Rabbi Goldstein was absolutely inspirational. And you know, we in Calgary had never seen a woman rabbi, most of us couldn't even imagine it. So it was such a treat for us. So many of us came away feeling nourished spiritually in a way that we hadn't before, especially those of us who didn't feel like we quite fit in any of the denominations that were there at the time. And so it was after Rabbi Goldstein left that I started saying to myself, I could be a woman rabbi. Wow. And, you know, Amazing. my journey took a couple of decades because, <laughs> you know, there's no rabbinic schools here in Canada. And I had small children and my parents and, you know, I wasn't going anywhere. But that's where it came from. On the note of being non-denominational, did you see that as being necessary to be accepted as a woman who was a rabbi? Um, what made you decide to go that route as opposed to reform or going to a maharat? Um, the non-denominational wasn't actually to be accepted. In fact, I think I knew that being non-denominational would actually be more difficult and more of a challenge because you're not sort of embraced by your own home denomination that way. But I wanted to make sure that I was available to those here in this community who, again, don't quite feel like they fit under the tent of traditional Judaism and maybe need something that's a little bit more specialized for them. So that's why I took that route. I wanted to make sure that the tent under which Judaism lives is open and welcoming as much as possible. That's beautiful. And Rabbi Rachel, being in the Orthodox world, what were some of the challenges that you were worried about facing going into this job? And now that you're in it, how much of those were real and how much of those were just in your head? It's a good question. I, I sort of fell into this work um, by accident. I, I knew I wanted to be a Jewish educator, but I knew I didn't want to be in the classroom. And so I sort of meandered through other possibilities um, and... Uh, and my my education through through Drisha and, and and other learning opportunities were really all about trying to find my place in the landscape of of the Jewish community. Um, and something actually I've been thinking about as I'm hearing all of us speak is that um, you know we say you can't be what you don't see. So now that uh, women and girls and people of all genders see see female rabbis, then they know that people of all genders can be rabbis. But if you hadn't seen that, it wasn't like I would have said, I, I want to be a rabbi. I didn't see it. it. It didn't exist in my landscape, even though, of course, in the reform, reconstructionist, conservative movements, it did. That wasn't my milieu, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, New York, in a modern Orthodox community. So I fell into the work 
um, looking for the right kind of educational leadership job and and ending up in a congregation in Chicago. And um, and I understood right away being in, it was a very clearly a clergy position, although I had no title. Um, but because of the the senior rabbi, talk about role models, it's also male allies who make space, um, who kind of elbow room space for women to, to step in. And so I, I give great hakarat hatov gratitude. Or don't. Right. Well, okay, <laughs> we can talk about that as well. Um, the male, males who don't realize that they're holding power and not ceding it. Um, but in my case in Chicago, it was uh, Rabbi Asher Lopatin who made the space and who messaged very clearly to his congregation that I was a member of the clergy. Um, and I understood right away that there was going to be a lot of pushback, and there was. But um, the, the pushback came from a, a total lack of understanding of what I was and what I wasn't and what I was there to do. And, and once people see that I'm... I don't know how to put this, like, uh, I'm comfortably orthodox and comfortably a leader. And the greatest testimony of my right to be there is the quality of my work. And so as soon as I started having coffees and teaching classes and connecting with people, all of that fell away. Same thing when I when I moved six years later to Montreal, and I've been here now for nine years, um, so the, the pushback in, in my congregations has been um, immediate by a very small minority and then immediately gone as soon as I'm in the role. The pushback that exists, that this sustained pushback, are from people by and large, and I'll speak on sort of a larger landscape here, the pushback against women being ordained as rabbis um, has very little, if, if any, grounding in halakha. I would say has no grounding in halakha, but of course halakha can be interpreted in many different ways. Um, and uh, so has no grounding in halakha, has deep grounding in what's traditional, but more so the pushback is from people who have never sat in our pews, who have never heard us speak, who have never sat in my shi'ur. Who, people who like to inhabit the blogosphere <laughs> um, or who, who may be, you know, putting out statements, statements on behalf of, you know, rabbinic organizations that are opposed to women being rabbis, but not from any sense of having met us and been with us and learned from us. Those who have learned with us and from us and, and you know, received support from us as chaplains in hospitals or have studied in our classrooms have, by and large, let their 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 inhibitions their their hesitations melt away. That's so fascinating uh, because they see where we're doing the work and we're comfortable in our orthodox skin. Mm-hmm. And um and you know I like to joke like the first time I got up and spoke from the Shar Shemayim pulpit on Rosh Hashanah of 2013, you know the the ceiling didn't crumble down. The the place still stood. And in fact, as I walked back down from the bima and, you know, went to, uh, we, we always greet the clergy, you know, walk out first and greet everybody at the back, at the, at the doors of the sanctuary. I, uh, uh, women were, had tears in their eyes and, and said, you know, we've been waiting so long for this moment. Um, people were very excited mm-hmm. by it. And Rabbi Goldstein, being, your shul is a reform shul, if that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah. So 
what kind of pushback did you experience or do you still experience? I saw you kind of nodding along to some of what Rachel was saying about um, the ra- uh, male people in the pulpit maybe taking up too much space. I'm not, I'm putting those words into your mouth. You didn't actually say that, but that's what I took from it. You know, again, I hate to be the voice of history, but I think it's really instructive here. So when I first came, 1983, I was the only female rabbi in the whole country. So, uh, and for those three years until uh, other women started coming. And so my male colleagues were more, I think, shocked and like deer caught in the headlight than angry or hostile. They just didn't get it. They just like didn't get that I was a rabbi and I, and, and I was going to do what they do. And they took up a lot of space um, in, in you know, trying to figure out how to treat me. Um, when I first came, the Toronto Board of Rabbis didn't know what to do with me, right? Um, I ended up being the first female president of the Toronto Board of Rabbis. And the day of that vote, um, I was sure we, there were those of us who thought that the Toronto Board of Rabbis would fold as a result of that. And I'll just tell a very quick story because it's worth telling. There were in those days some Orthodox colleagues on the Toronto Board of Rabbis. Um, and when the vote came... It was pretty incredible that both of them had to go to the washroom at exactly the moment of the vote. Now, you could, on the one hand, say, that's so rude, you know, they didn't want to vote no in public, you know, and so they absented themselves. But I saw it as a great act of chesed, you know, a great act of loving kindness. Because rather than embarrass me by voting no, right, and bringing the, bringing the place down, they just absented themselves, and they couldn't abstain publicly either because all the colleagues would look at them and say, what, you know, we, abstaining is a no. So in those days, my male colleagues could not. They just couldn't make room for me. They just didn't know how. Um, but slowly, slowly, you know, everybody figured out, no, she's really a rabbi, and she's really doing rabbi things, and we better figure out how to open those doors. Now, today... I find it really, really interesting because in my congregation, for example, no one cares in the least that I'm female because I'm the rabbi and I started that congregation 11 years ago. So, you know, I was known in the community and everybody was like, oh, Rabbi Elise Golson is starting a congregation. And so so the pushback is actually more from um, expectations that female rabbis do things differently. And the disappointment when people find out that that's not true. Now, every one of us does things differently because we have a unique rabbinic persona, right? Every one of us. But you know, when people say to me, oh, I saw a woman rabbi in New Jersey and she was very different than you. Well, what, you know, of course, we're, each one of us is unique. We are our own rabbis. But when people still say, oh, I thought you would be different because you're female. I thought you'd say yes to something that every male rabbi in town has said no to. Um, or I thought that you would do something that no other rabbi will do, whatever it is. Um, that's still the pushback that we get. And of course, in our movement, and I think in all the movements, we're dealing a lot now with the pushback that we're finding from the re- revelations of tremendous sexual harassment that we've all suffered through the years, all of us, up till today and continue to, I still have congregants who are, um, I would, male congregants, I would, or man, people who meet me at weddings and things who are inappropriately intimate in where they stand close to me 
or they hug me without asking, or they kiss me without asking, or they first name me without asking, or they ask me personal questions about my husband or my children without asking. And I find that to be uh, something that my male colleagues don't experience. And of course, I don't think my male colleagues experience the kind of sexual, sexual harassment that some of us experienced all through rabbinical seminary and, once, and also once we were ordained. Thank you for sharing that. I want to go back to um, what you were just saying before about your congregation being fairly accepting. Do you think that was easier because you started your shul in downtown Toronto versus Thornhill or North York or somewhere else like that because it's a much, you know, maybe younger, more progressive people who want to live downtown? I always, I always joke that, you know, if you, if you looked at my congregation, mostly you'd see tattoos and earrings where you would never see them in Thornhill. Um, but, uh, and the kind of, the kind of families of diverse families that we experience, uh, and diverse people that we experience. Um, but I, I, I think it's more than that. I think it's that, um, the glass ceilings of Toronto were broken and, you know, we may still be stepping on the shards a little bit, but, you know, there are so many female identified rabbis in Toronto now, you know, there's a, there's a, collegiality among us. Nobody says, oh, you're a woman rabbi, you know, because honestly, honestly, unless they've lived in a cave, they, they've seen one of us write an article for the CJN or in the, in the Globe and Mail or in the National Post. I mean, I've been, as I said, I've been on hundreds of TV and radio interviews, not about being a woman rabbi, by the way, when there's a crisis in Israel and they want a rabbinic voice, right? When there's a crisis in the community, when there's an anti-Semitic, you know, when there's a ring of peace, the, the female rabbis are, some of us, myself included, are the senior rabbis of this community, you know? And so I think yeah. when, look at Yael Splansky, Rabbi Yael Splansky at Holy Blossom. She, you know, she is one of the senior voices of r the rabbi in this community. So I think basically my community was like, when is, when is Elise Goldstein going to start a shul? Okay. It's, you know, when is she going to retire from Kolel and start a shul? I think it's instructive, and I think it's true of the other two uh, rabbis mm -hmm. on this panel. I think it's instructive to talk to the kids in our congregation. Like, nobody drags a person over and points to us anymore and says, look, my rabbi is a woman. I may, Maybe still happens in Rabbah Feingold. Yes, yes, yes. But We're I don't still, think it happens in Reform. But, reform but not I the people who are regulars, just the, the visitors, right? People who are visitors. I think what happens in Reform congregations, which is the funniest thing, is when people say, oh, there are male rabbis too. That's so cool. That's, that's hilarious. I want to change gears a bit and talk a bit about head coverings. Rabbi Krieger, I noticed you're wearing a kippah. Um, Rabbi Goldstein, I can't see the back of your head, so I'm not sure. I am. Um, uh, so I, I know, obviously, every denomination has various things that they do differently, but I'd really love to hear a bit more about um, whether your head covering was a choice that you wanted to make, or is that because you felt like you couldn't in the denom denomination that you were in? Maybe I'll, I'll start with uh, Rebuff Feingold on that one. I'm not wearing a kippah. I'm wearing a hat. Um, you didn't mention that for yes. our listeners, so just making sure everybody sees my that, hat. That is a good point. Rebuff um, Feingold is wearing a hat. <laughs> and... Well, it's a bit different um, in a movement that follows Orthodox halakha, which, in which um, a married woman covers her head. And I, I did choose to follow that um, when I first got married 16 years ago. 
Um, I think what I'm going to sort of read into that question is really a question of how do we embody our leadership or our religious role modeling, um, especially here at the Shar, where we're a congregation where the clergy wear robes on the bima, uh, one of the last places in the world. And um, I mean, I know many places, many, many synagogues still have clergy robes just on the high holidays, but we have it weekly on Shabbat. Um, and our cantor wears a, the cantor's hat and our officers wear top hats. And, um, and it, it's a big question for me. Like, I, I think as, as female religious figures, I'm very conscious of how we physically embody in our bodies um, that religious space. Um, so I actually, oh, so the, the question of me wearing the clergy robes was a very interesting conversation. When I first came, it was clear that I wasn't going to wear the clergy robes. Um, I don't sit on the bima. I sit in the women's section, which is adjacent to the bima. Um, and it didn't feel like it made sense for me to be wearing the robes when I don't sit on the bima. Uh, and it also, um, it wasn't something that I, I'm a much more, I don't know, I, I, I grew up in a shul that was in the basement, of, in the cafeteria of a school, like a much more informal atmosphere. And it was a lot for me to get used to sort of the pomp and ceremony of Congregation Sharashamayim, 175-year-old uh, traditions. So um, it took a long while until I started talking again about the question of wearing the robes. And I now, I do wear the robes when I officiate funerals, um, because in those settings at the funeral chapel, um, there is a, I don't know if I, I can say a co-ed bima space, right? Um, by the way, I, I, I'm going to just interrupt myself to, to tell you a, a quick story about the question of sitting on the bima. Uh, first of all, I had no idea that it was even important because um, in my congregation, as I said, growing up, we didn't have a bima. In Chicago, there were no clergy who were sitting on, sitting on the bima. We sat amongst the people. And the, the very first interview, Rabbi Goldstein talking about many years of interviews, the very first media interview I gave after being hired by Congregation Shar Shemayim, the first question of that first interview from, from the first reporter was, where are you going to sit? And I said, I I don't know. I have to check it out. I have to see where I want to sit in the women's section. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm going to sit in one of the pews in the front of the women's section. I couldn't understand how significant that was. And fast forward years later, my daughter, who at the time was maybe six or seven years old, um, asked me one day, Ima, how come you don't sit on the bima? So thinking fast on my feet, tell me, rabbinic uh, colleagues, if, if you would, how you might have answered that. Because in that moment, I didn't want to disempower her. She sees me as a full member of the clergy, but she also sees that I'm not sitting um, on the bima with my rabbinic colleague. So I said, because this sanctuary was built a hundred years ago when they didn't imagine having a rabbah. So I basically explained to her that it's an issue of architecture, which by the way, it is. Because many modern Orthodox synagogues have a mechitza down the center, and there could be bima access from both sides of the room. And I, I, I do have a colleague who, uh, when, when, when she um, 
be, became part of the clergy uh, in, in her congregation. They sort of extended in the machitza a little bit so that she would sit on the bima in a halachically appropriate manner for that congregation. But at the shar, for anyone there who hasn't been to the shar, the women's sections are on two sides of the room. The men's section is in the center. And I simply said, the you know, the men on the building committee in 1920 <laughs> didn't imagine that we would be here today. Um but of course, we are we are actually re, uh, renovating our smaller chapel soon, and, and it's going to be a very different setup, and it's going to allow for um, egalitarian access to the speaking places. It's going to be a central beam. It's going to be very different um, in terms of the architecture. But it goes to this question of, I think, um, you know, where we would like to erase the differences between women and men and people of all genders. I think, especially in an Orthodox congregation and perhaps even in the world at large, we can still ask the question of what women bring to the to the space. And in a congregation where there is a machitza in the room, the female experience and the male experience just are simply different. And we need to have um, representation, leadership representation from both genders in a space like that. And I, I think what I'm exploring in my leadership is, you know, what is the feminine that we can bring um, to 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 spiritual leadership, not because we are women, but maybe as part of us as human beings. It's one aspect of, of who we might be. That's a great segue um, into so my covering next my question. head as a as a oh, married sorry. woman. Wait, I, they didn't get to answer the the keep up <laughs> question. So I, I really am curious to hear it. I took over. I'm sorry, ladies. Um but but the covering my head is as an Orthodox woman and not necessarily as a member of the clergy, but I think a lot about how we embody um that leadership in in the spaces that we're in. Um so I want to talk a little bit about the changes that you may have seen, um, Rabbi Goldstein, that women have brought to the rabbinate or maybe even to Jewish community life. Can you tell me a bit about your perspective? Sure. But I just want to start with a challenging answer to Rabbi Feingold's daughter. So um, the great Norma Joseph from your community in Montreal, who was the first fem Orthodox feminist yes. I ever met. I was privileged to be on a panel with her in 1983 and we've remained friends ever since, um, tells the following story. Her daughter once um, challenged her husband by saying, Abba, do you know that there's a morning blessing every morning in our prayer book that says, thank God for not making me a woman? You don't say that one, do you? To which Rabbi Joseph answered, as of today, I don't. Mm. So to me, the answer, the answer, yeah. the challenging answer to your daughter is, as of today, because of your question, I'm sitting on the bima. But that's my way of doing things. Well, but that's the, my, but my way point of breaking is the glass dealings. But the bima is in the men's section. So I think this is about the systemic barriers that exist for Orthodox yeah. women in leadership. No there question. are systemic barriers that we haven't quite solved yet, that sometimes architecture is the way it's expressed, but there are much deeper systemic barriers. And she is just seeing that. Yeah, and that's the change. So that's the change, Alana, that the change is that 39 years ago, those, you know, people tentatively and carefully and, and frighteningly asked those questions. And today, you know, I think that feminism was a great revolution in the Jewish uh, war history. And I think it'll go down in history books as much as emancipation and as much as other great movements of Jewish history. And I just actually finished an article for a book uh, on the, the radical Jewish changes that feminism 
brought. Um, so those, those changes make way, by the way, for the very fact that Rabbi Feingold is saying people of all genders, right? So feminism opened the door for us to talk about gender in general. Of course, now we need to talk about uh, people that don't identify as either male or female, as being really welcome and valued in our communities, in our Jewish communities. Um, and we have to talk about people whose gender expression is not conformist. Um, and so to me, feminism allowed the conversations that we're having today about gender in general to happen. When we began the conversation about the female gender and female presenting rabbis, we allowed, we opened the door for conversations about everything, about welcoming interfaith families in, about welcoming nonconforming families in, about <clears throat> welcoming single people in. Um, all of those conversations, that I think, would not have happened without the feminist agenda, which 39 years ago was a revolutionary agenda. So that's number one. Number two, um, the keep has a really good symbol, Alana, and I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, you know, I often say that it's really too bad that rabbis didn't get to wear those collars that priests get to wear. You know, because then when I go on the subway, everybody would know I'm a rabbi, you know. And then when I go into shopping, grocery shopping, everybody Now, in this community, everybody knows I'm a rabbi and anyway. But, you know, we don't have a uniform. But our male colleagues do have a uniform, right? Their uniform is kippan tzitzit. And, you know, in Israel, I know Jewish feminists who wear tzitzit. And they wear them hanging out. And they do it on purpose. A, they feel commanded. They've taken on. I shouldn't say they feel commanded. They've actually taken on voluntarily that mitzvah. And they take it seriously. And B, they want to be seen as wearing a Jewish uniform or a Jewish costume or whatever word you want to use. And I mean costume in a very positive way. So to me, when I get on the bima and I'm doing my rabbi thing, you know, I'm going to wear kippan talit, for sure, for sure. So one of the one of the changes, the other changes, besides for the conversation about gender, which is so important for us to be having today, um, is that, you know, we opened up rituals that were formerly closed. Like, if you come to my congregation on Shabbat morning, uh, the, the, a lot, a lot, if not the majority of women are wearing talitot. Um, and if you come up to my bima, by the way, and we make this announcement at the beginning of Shabbat services, if you have an honor on the bima, you must wear a kippah talit, no matter what gender you identify as, or no gender, right? Which, by the way, only emphasizes the fact that that's not a rabbinic uniform, right? That's a Jewish uniform. Yes, it's a Jewish uniform. So when you uniform. put exactly. on the kippah and talit, it's not because you're a rabbi. Right. It's, it's a prayer uniform it might... for me. Right, right, right. So for me, it's a prayer uniform. So, so I'd love, if I could just make this image... I'd love you to imagine in your mind, especially, Alana, how you've grown up and are now putting a toe into the Gantan experience. I want you to imagine the grandmother of the bar mitzvah who has never even been up to the Torah, let alone worn a talit, coming up to the bima, putting on a talit, and standing at the Torah to have her aliyah. And, you know, I have people, I have women, older women say to me, well, if I have to put on a talit, I'm not coming up to the bima because it's just I'm too uncomfortable with that. And I say to them, that's our Jewish uniform in our synagogue for showing honor to the Torah. Um, and I appreciate that, but I can't, I'm not going to be able to change that for you. Um, and you know what? Through the years, the 11 years that City Shul's been around, lots of grandmothers have said, you know what? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push through that discomfort. And even for this one minute, 
I'm going to respect the minhag hamakom, the tradition of your synagogue, and I'm going to do that. So I think that's tremendous. I'll give you one other quick example. When I go to Orthodox synagogues now, I wear my tallit. First of all, I wear my tallit every Shabbat no matter where I am, no matter what synagogue I daven in, and I don't change that for any denomination. 39 years ago, when I wore my tallit in an Orthodox synagogue in Toronto, it caused a riot. Like, literally, like, ushers didn't know what to do. And they didn't know, should they send me to the men's section? I was clearly presenting as a female, right? And then, you know, and one usher came over to me and, you know, put his arm around me and he said, I'm really sorry. They didn't know I was a rabbi. I'm really sorry to say, but women in our congregation don't wear tallit. And I said, well, let's have a halachic discussion about that because I'd like to know the halachic reasoning behind that. And maybe we could study Rabbeinu Tom's response on women wearing talitot. You know, you say that and like everybody's, oh, I don't want to get, I don't know Rabbeinu Tom. You go ahead, wear your talit. Today, 39 years later, when I'm invited to an Orthodox synagogue as a speaker or for someone's kids, or for bar mitzvah or whatever, I put on my talit. And oh, they look, maybe they look, but sometimes actually there's even a... One or two other females in the congregation wearing a tallit. Um, you know, Norma Joseph tells the story when she put on her tallit at the Spanish Portuguese in Montreal, they said, Oh, she's the rabbi's wife. She's crazy. So people still <laughs> look at me and go, Oh, she's a rabbi. That's why she's wearing a tallit. But I tried to explain this as one of the changes. It's really important to note that feminism is present in every corner of the Jewish community. And let us not think that the ultra-Orthodox community has not also been deeply impacted and that orth- there's ultra-Orthodox mitzvahs women now in every have community. also not uh, benefited. Yeah, there's, there's women's learning. And um, talking about titles, you know, my ultra-Orthodox colleagues whom I know personally um, respect me, respect the work that I'm doing, and they'll call me Rebetzin. But not because I'm married to a rabbi, which I happen to be, but they refer to me as a rebbitzin, as a as a female leader in my own right. That's using their language, um, but but the fact that the title rebbitzin or rabbanit has evolved in Orthodox spaces to mean a female who's a, a leader in her own right is is a feminist moment in in that part of our community. I want to throw it back to Rabbi Krieger. So being the newest um, rabbi in this group, what changes do you still want to see for women in positions of uh, clergy or spiritual leaders? Well, I I love what Rabbi Goldstein said about, you know, sort of breaking down those barriers 39 years ago and still sometimes today. Um, I had the honor of officiating at a bar mitzvah a couple weeks ago where it turned out that the mother of the bar mitzvah um, never had a bat mitzvah herself, was never called up to the Torah, as neither was I, because when I was that age, that's not what girls did in this community. Um, And she came up and she took over a couple of his pesukim in the Torah, and she she had her bat mitzvah right then and there alongside her son. That's awesome. I'm getting chills. And it was so, <laughs> it was so beautiful. It was so Lador Vador. And, and to, and no, no women there were wearing, you know, Talitot except for, except for me. And then her for coming up to the Torah. And it was such a beautiful way to model that for all of the rest of the, the, the B'nai Mitzvah students that were there, for their parents that were there, were still doing that work. And I think it's, 
it's such a beautiful calling. Do you think, Rabbi Krieger, that it helps that you're a homegrown, as you said, in, when you were when you were growing up there? Like, does it help because you're a homegrown Calgary native that people are willing to trust you more? I don't know if they trust me more. The The clergy that are here, as I've mentioned, are male, um, and they're all from the States. So I am the, the homegrown person here. Um, and yes, maybe it does help a little bit that if I'm going to go ahead and push the boundaries, um, that I feel very rooted here and the people that know me trust me. So yes, maybe you're right. So just to wrap things up, my last question, um, and I'd like to hear from you again first, Rabbi Krieger, what do you think it will take societally before we start to call women rabbis just rabbis across the board in our community? I think we just keep doing what we're doing. We just keep fighting the good fight. We embody our our spirituality and our tradition in our female-presenting way and just let that kind of sink in. You know, it takes some time. We have a very old tradition. And in the span of, you know, how long Judaism has been around and whatever its forms have been this last 50 years is a very small blip. So even though it feels like, come on, hurry up, you know, it's, it's time already, it's also like, it's okay. It's okay to take a little bit more time. Rabbi Feingold or Rabbi Goldstein, do you have uh, anything you would like to answer to that question that's different? I, would, I just want to add to Rabbi Krieger's beautiful, um, hopeful, optimistic ending. Uh, this this parable, when you're you know when you're pushing an iceberg, you cannot feel it move. But if you step back many years later and you look at where the iceberg is now, maybe with climate change this isn't such a great metaphor anymore. But if you stand back on the shore, and you see that you've been pushing the iceberg, you see how far it's moved. So in this group, I have the benefit of really stepping back having been pushing this iceberg for so long, really stepping back and seeing how incredibly far it's moved, the very fact that we're all here and that, you know, there's an Orthodox Rabban, that we're celebrating 50 years since Rabbi Prezant, the iceberg has moved very far. So that I want to I wanna remind the listeners that with all the, with all the discomfort and the battles and the personal struggles, uh, the iceberg has moved far. And the second thing I want to remind the listeners is that all of us feel, I think I can speak for all of us, that we have not been pushing that iceberg alone. You know, that there have been colleagues who've been pushing it with us, both male and female and no, all non-genders. Um, there have been congregants pushing that iceberg with us. There have been movements pushing that iceberg with us. As uncomfortable as it's been for some, you know, to find themselves pushing that iceberg with us, they have done it because they see the benefit to the Jewish community and to Jew Jewish history of how far that iceberg has gone. And I'm so blessed and grateful to be watching from the shore the next generation, you know, of female rabbis pushing. It's fantastic. Rabbi Feingold, do you want to close us off? Oh, my goodness. Pressure. Um, I want to say, first of all, Rabbi Goldstein, we are standing on your shoulders and on the shoulders of Norma Joseph, and on the shoulders of Absolutely. so many who really went at it alone, alone. Um, so, hakarat hatov, deepest of gratitude. 
for for all of you and the work that you did and continue to do. I, I, I can't help but bring in a little Shavuot lesson because it is we're standing on the cusp of, of Shavuot, the day that we received the Torah. And one of my favorite teachings about um, the moment at Sinai, it, it says that the people of Israel reached Sinai uh, by Yom Hazeh on this day, and, and grammatically, it actually should it should theoretically state by Yom Hahu on that day they reached Sinai, but instead it says by Yom Hazeh on this day, which the commentators say is meant to remind us that the Torah is new every day, that there is something that this day, this moment calls for, that is that maybe is different from from the past, and I know for myself, you know, I I. I sort of stand on this tightrope between tradition and modernity, and I'm always um, being challenged to ask kind of what what does this day require of me? How can I bring my my femaleness to the table and also my humanness um, so that we're not only speaking as women and to women, but that we're speaking also as human beings to to everyone that we that we hope to serve. And so that's um, the, the question that maybe I would I would leave us thinking about is wh- what does this day need? What does this generation need? What does this moment call us to do as we greet Shavuot? Beautiful. Thank you so much, uh, everyone, for joining me today. It was such an honor to talk to you all. It's been an honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of June 3rd, Shabbat Parshat Bamidbar. Our producer is Michael Freeman, technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the episode, please do tell a friend about Bonjour Chai. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca.